I'm reading this morning from John chapter 4, verses 1 to 42. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had gone through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sechar, near the plot of ground Jesus had, um, Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew. I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right. When you say you have no husband, the fact is you had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and now come when the true worshippers will worship in Father, the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God in Spirit and his worshippers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, will he explain everything to us? Then Jesus declared, I am the one speaking to you. I am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking to a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking to her? Then leaving her water jar, the water The woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. 
But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And when his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying it's still four months until harvest? I will tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage for harvest and harvests a crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying one sows and another reaps is true. I send you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. Because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. We have now heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. Big passage, some good stuff going on, so let's get to it. My kids and I have just finished reading the, well sorry, we're almost finished reading the Harry Potter series, and I've been sowing the seeds with my kids that maybe Lord of the Rings could be next. Fee thinks I'm crazy. I admit, they might not love it quite as much, but I'm hopeful, guys, that this could work out. So anyway, Lord of the Rings has been on my mind particularly as I read this passage, thinking about this one little scene uh, where in the first movie, uh, the first book, uh, the Fellowship of the Ring are lost in what's called the Mines of Moria. And we've had this conversation between Gandalf the Wizard and Frodo the Hobbit, where Gandalf tells Frodo that this bad guy who used to hold the Ring of Power that they're now trying to destroy has been following them for three days. It's not good. Frodo says it's a pity Bilbo, Frodo's uncle, didn't kill Gollum when he had the chance. Wouldn't it be great if this bad guy was just removed from our lives? We didn't have to worry about him anymore. Gandalf says, pity. It was pity that stayed Bilbo's hand. Many that live deserve death. Some that die deserve life. Can you give it to them, Frodo? Do not be too eager to deal out death in judgment. Even the very wise cannot see all ends. My art tells me that Gollum has some part to play in it, for good or evil before this is over. And if you know the story, then you know that Gandalf's words were true. It was indeed a good thing that Bilbo's hand was stayed by pity and that he showed mercy to an enemy. And we're going to see in this passage that God loves the unlikely. God loves those who we might not think to love ourselves, but he shows us what it is to love those who are unlikely to be saved. So today what we're going to do to look at this passage is look at the woman at the well, we're going to work through that passage, then we can think about this big idea of how God saves the unlikely, and then we're going to briefly think about what it means to worship God in spirit and in truth. Let's do it. So the woman of the world comes on the heels of what we've seen uh, in the last couple of weeks, these exchanges between Jesus and Nicodemus, John the Baptist and his disciples, and the religious leaders have heard about how Jesus has been baptizing folk just like John the Baptist. Jesus gets word that they now know about this and he thinks, you know what, I'm just going to move on. I don't want to make a big deal out of this just yet. And so he decides to head back to Galilee where he is from. And he does so by going through an area 
called Samaria, because this was non-Jewish territory, and he wasn't super likely to bump into any of these Jewish leaders that he was going to have a problem with on the way there. So we read that it says that we had to go through Samaria. So we came to a town called Sakar, and in this plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph way back in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour, about midday. Okay? And then we have this exchange between Jesus and this woman who comes to get water. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. Disciples have always, always very interested in food. I don't know if you notice that as you read through the Gospels. Disciples are always aware of what's going on with the food situation. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. It's one of those passages you get to and feels like, oh, it feels like there's a background story here, and indeed there is. Let me tell you a little bit about it. The Samaritans were a people that had a long history with the Jews, and it was kind of intertwined. Because what had happened was that 750 years earlier, the former kingdom of Israel was broken up into two separate sections, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. Well, that actually happened about 900 years ago, and then 750 years ago, the kingdom of Israel in the north was captured by a nation called Assyria. And what the Assyrians would do when they capture or conquered a people is they would import all these other peoples from across their empire so that they would intermarry with the local population. Why would they do this? Because it would destroy that local sense of culture and identity. Much easier to rule over a people that had lost their sense of history and who they were as a people. So the Samaritans sort of developed this mixture of partial Jewish beliefs, but also imported a whole bunch of different ideas from all these foreign gods that came in when these people from across the Assyrian Empire became part of their territory. And so the Jewish people were very down on them. There's this real tension. Jewish people think they're the people of God. Samaritan people think that the Samaritan people, sorry, think that they're the people of God, and so this tension exists between them. Hence why this woman is like, you're a Jewish guy, and you're talking to me. This is weird. But Jesus sidesteps all that, doesn't engage in that conversation. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Living water? The woman thinks. What, 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 what is this? You know, what, what are you talking about? You don't have a bucket. You can't get any water out of the well? Are you saying that you're better than Jacob, but, you know, our ancestor who set this well up in the first place? What is going on here? Jesus says, well, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, the well and the water. Sorry, the water and the well. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, I don't know about you guys, you're pretty smart. I would hope that most of you guys would be like, wow, what is this Jesus is talking about here? This is, this seems to be something special, that sort of stuff. Woman at the well thinks magic water, maybe? She says, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. She still thinks Jesus is talking about actual water. And Jesus is like, no, that, that, that's not what we're talking about here. Let's try a different tack. So he says to her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. 
the fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. So this woman that we've got here, okay, a bit of a plot twist, she's not just a Samaritan, but in the culture of the day, she was considered an immoral woman also. There were some rabbis that taught that women in particular couldn't get married more than two or three times, that that was a sin in and of itself. Today, we're much used to the idea of people being divorced and all that sort of stuff, but even still, five is a lot. But back then, the fact that she'd been divorced five times and was now living with somebody who was not her husband was clearly against God's law, and she was probably shunned for it. There's some people that think that the reason she was coming at midday to get water from the well is because she couldn't come early in the morning with the rest of the women because they would not associate with her because of her moral standing. So we have here a woman who's not just a Samaritan, not just somebody who doesn't get along with God's people, but also an immoral woman who is now breaking God's law. And so Jesus says this to her, and her response, interestingly enough, is not to defend herself or anything else like that, but to be amazed that he knows these things about her. She says, Sir, I can see that you are a prophet. And what she does is, she brings back up this issue about the Jewish people and the Samaritans. She's confronted with her sinfulness, but what she focuses on still is this religious question. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. This is twice that she's brought up this topic. Jesus tried to go a different direction, she's brought it back again. The implied question is here, you seem to be a prophet, so who's right? Us or the Jews? And Jesus gives her an answer that is, is, there's no uncertain terms about it. He says, actually, it's my team, it's the Jews. Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming, and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. What's Jesus saying here? She's bringing up this religious question. Do we worship on the mountain, or do we worship in the city? And he's saying, you know what? The Jewish people are the ones who've always had God's promises. They have been the true people of God. Salvation is from the Jews, most particularly in this guy, Jesus, who's now standing before you. But you know what? Mountain, city, not going to be a problem anytime soon. In fact, even now, what God is looking for are those who are going to worship him in spirit and in truth. It's not about where you worship, but whether you are worshipping him in spirit and in truth. Are you following the spirit of God and are you believing in God's revealed truth to us? The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. I know, I know the Savior, the Anointed One, the Promised One, from King David's family, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. She knows something of the Messiah. She says, I know that's the guy who's meant to make this clear to us. And Jesus says, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Like a little mic drop. Now what's amazing is, he hasn't actually revealed himself this plainly to any of the Jewish people that he's been hanging around. Right? Now he's got his reasons. He knows that his hour has not yet come. He's deliberately 
keeping the truth veiled because he knows that what's going to happen when people find out that he is saying that he is the Messiah and indeed that he is equal with God is that that's going to lead to his death. So there's a reason he hasn't been revealing that to the Jewish people too clearly, but it's significant, right? That here, meeting this Samaritan woman, this enemy of the people of God, that he so clearly says to her, you know, I am the Messiah. I'm the guy. I'm the one who's revealing truth. Now, before the woman can respond, Jesus' guys rock up. They get back and they're like, this is weird, Jesus is talking to a woman. I should mention as well, not only is she an enemy of the people of God, not only is she an immoral woman, but even just talking to a woman out in the open back in that time was considered kind of scandalous. Like, there were some rabbis that even said, don't talk to your wife in public. There's jokes I can make, but I'm not going to. This was a big deal just that he was there. But Jesus' disciples showing some rare wisdom on behalf of the disciples. Don't question Jesus on this one. Always a good move. Don't don't question Jesus, just go with it. And so just like he's spoken to the woman about this living water, he's now going to talk to his to his guys about food, because that's always what they're interested in. My food, he says, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say four months more and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the reaper draws his wages. Even now he harvests the crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I say you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Jesus says to these guys who have gone looking for food, okay, when they offer it to him, no, no, I've got food of my own. They're like, what are you talking about? Well, it's this food. This is my food is to do the will of my Father, to, to harvest what's out there for the Lord, to bring people into the kingdom. That's what we're doing now. This is what I'm all about. This is my food. This is what fuels me. And when he says here that others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor, what he's saying is that God's plans for centuries before, the work of God's people has been coming towards this and you, my guys, are about to reap this harvest. Now the woman had used this as an opportunity to get out of this awkward situation. She is, she is ducked down to the village and she's been telling folk down there I met this guy, and he's told me everything that I've ever done. He, he might be the Messiah. Samaritans, being a religious people, being people who are interested in the Messiah, was now their turn to see what's going on. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They've heard the woman's testimony and they think, my goodness, this guy sounds like he is the Messiah. They come and hear him speak himself and now they're really in. And so they say to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. The Savior of the world. Think about that for a second. This woman has made a big deal about the Jewish people and the Samaritans. Who is right? Is God with us or is God with them? 
But now, after spending a couple of days with Jesus, these Samaritans are recognizing that Jesus is not just the Savior of the Samaritans or the Jewish people, but the Savior of the world. He is the Savior of all. And we can very well say from then until now. All who believe in him, regardless of where we come from, Jesus is the Savior of the world. So, that, that's the passage. There's a fair bit going on. So what I want to do is I want to, to sum this up to a certain extent up, uh, under a couple of headings to give us some ideas about what's happening in this passage. And there's a lot. But let's focus on these for now. This big idea from this passage, I think, as we look at it, is that Jesus saves the unlikely. When you think about it, to really get a picture of the Jews and the Samaritans, the sort of conflict that existed between these guys, we've got to think about something like Israel and Palestine today, or maybe like Protestants and Catholics in Ireland in the 80s and the 90s. This was a conflict that was born out of similarity as much as division. There's a shared history, but sometimes when you have that shared history and then you divide, it makes it all the more intense. Because there's things that you agree over which only just highlights the differences and seems to make them that much bigger. Because the Romans ruled over both Judea and Samaria at the time, there was peace between them politically, but relationally it was hostile. And so we see this picture of Jesus going to people that you would not expect to be part of God's works and what God was doing. Jesus is going to save the unlikely. But there's kind of three subheadings that fit under this to help us think a little bit about some of the nuances that's going on here. First one is this. Jesus saves those who do not get along with his people. Remember, Jesus was a Jewish guy. Jesus says salvation is from the Jews. There's no doubt in Jesus' mind that the Jewish people have been God's people throughout all of this. The Samaritans have been wrong on that one. Nevertheless, Jesus is looking to save those who have not gotten along with God's people. And this is a massive thing for us to remember today. Because as Joe prayed for earlier, we're seeing more and more examples of things like this Victorian legislation coming in, where there is a concerted effort to work against Christians being able to to live out what we believe to be God's word to us. That, that, that there is a real sense of sort of mounting political work against Christians. And it's, it's, it's not everything. I don't believe in like grand conspiracies and all that sort of stuff, but you'd be foolish not to recognize that there are serious forces at work politically that are seeking to undermine Christians' ability to proclaim the word of God truly and faithfully. When you, when you read some of the comments on news stories, like if you, there's an article in The Age this morning talking about the legislation in Victoria, and if you read through the comments, it's not, you don't feel great as a Christian reading them. There's some hostility towards us in those words. But if Jesus were here, would he respond with hostility and harsh words back to them? Or would he offer them a drink and tell them about the living water that he's come to bring. See, we just heard in chapter 3, John said that Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. Jesus, in this passage, has come not to condemn, but to save even those who are against God's people. 
if our heart today, when we have people working against us as Christians, is to seek to condemn them and fight against them, we are missing the spirit of Christ. Because Jesus here goes into enemy territory and offers living water to those who they don't even associate with. And so our heart needs to be, when we face that sort of opposition, to proclaim what Jesus has done and offer living water to. Which brings us to this, our, our second point here, when we talk about Jesus saving the unlikely, which is that Jesus saves sinners. Not an original point, I grant you, but one to think about. Because this woman, in this passage, is clearly identified to us as an immoral woman. We, we, we see things differently today because of the culture around us and all that sort of stuff, but God's word is clear. He is for marriage, and he's designed sex and intimacy to be expressed within marriage. This woman clearly sits outside of that. And she's shunned by her culture. But it's super interesting to see what Jesus does here. He identifies her sin. He says to her, you've spoken truly that you don't have a husband. He speaks to her and says, you've had five husbands and the one you live with now is not your husband, but this is important. He does not condemn her. He does not go on and then seek to shame her, but rather he identifies her sin and in her response to recognize, sir, I believe you're a prophet, he points her towards who he is. He is the Messiah and it's about worshipping him in spirit and truth. We need to be a people, as identifying here as Jesus saving the unlikely, we need to identify sin. We need to say that is sin. We need to say to people that you, you're, you're sinning and that leaves you in a certain place before God. But again, we don't do that to condemn. Rather, the law is a tutor that leads someone to Christ. We tell people about their sin in order they might recognize their need for a savior and then we tell them about Jesus the Messiah. And as we do so, we need to see this, uh, what I call the, the eyes of faith. Because third point here under Jesus saves the unlikely, Jesus saves lots of the unlikely. Jesus says to his disciples when they offer him food, I've got food of my own to do the will of my Father. And he says to them, I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the reaper draws his wages, even now he harvests the crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Friends, the fields remain ripe for the harvest. Here in the West, we've been plodding along as the church for the last hundred years. We, you've probably seen church stats and all this sort of stuff, that the church is either declining or growing barely in line with population. It doesn't look good from our natural eyes. In John, the gospel author's time, it didn't look good. When they're naturalized. This is the same guy that said that no one has believed in the testimony of the Lord. Now he did that. He was overstating his point. He was exaggerating. He knew that people had become Christian. But his point was that compared to the reality of the Lord of light coming into this world, it seems as though no one has. And it can seem that way for us now even. But the Lord tells us that the fields are ripe for harvest. Certainly, outside of this Western world, the gospel is flourishing in all sorts of places where you would, again, least expect it to. In underdeveloped countries, the gospel flourishes. I look around this room, and I see young people who have come to know the Lord and believe in Jesus 
in a world where they tell us again and again, it's just not happening, it's not likely, young people don't want to hear about it, all this sort of stuff. The fields remain ripe for the harvest and Jesus still saves the unlikely. And so, to finish up, our responsibility as those who believe in Jesus is to continue to worship him in spirit and in truth. We remember that we as God's people now were unlikely ourselves to be saved. Born into sin, born into guilt, rebellious, going our own way, doing our own thing, and by the grace and mercy of the Lord, He has rescued us and redeemed us and brought us in to His people. And now we need to seek to walk in the same spirit and truth as He does. To worship Him in accordance with the work of the Spirit, to listen to God's Word, to believe it. And we seek to do that in a context now where we continue to believe that God saves the unlikely. Whether it's your friends at school, whether it's your workmates, whether it's people at the retirement village, all those that you would look upon and say, man, they are so hostile towards God, I just don't think it's ever going to happen. I think the tale here of the Samaritan woman would beg to differ. And I'm going to pray that we remember that well. Father God, thank you so much for this passage and the encouragement that it is to all of us that you do save the unlikely. That, Father, you take those people who are hostile towards your people, who don't understand you, who are immoral, who are far from you in all sorts of different ways, politically, religiously, culturally, and yet you give them living water. You bring them into your kingdom. And we pray, Father, for all those that we know who are rejecting you, who are confused about you, who are hostile towards us. We pray, Lord, that by your spirit and in your truth you would bring them into your kingdom. We ask, Father, that we would be people who would always remember the unlikely place that you have saved us from in order that we might become your children. And we pray, Father, that as we worship in spirit and in truth, that we would be your hands and feet in this world, see more and more people come to know you and love you and serve you with all of their heart, mind, soul, and strength. And we thank you for this in the name of Jesus. Amen.